0: He's the most famous person in the history of the world. When he was born, there was buzzing in the palace of Herod about who he might be, Matthew 2, 3 through 8. The Pharisees and the scribes were astonished and perplexed by his untrained expertise and eloquence, John 7 and verse 15. The disciples wanted to follow him, but as much as they tried, even they were astonished by some of the things that he did. What manner of man is this? Even the winds and the seas obey him. Luke eight and verse twenty five. When he died so soon, Pilate couldn't believe it. Mark 15, 44, the Pharisees wouldn't believe it. Matthew 27, 62 through 63. This confusion and the various responses that people gave to Jesus in the Gospels really continues up to the present hour. If you meet somebody and you ask them, do they believe in Jesus, it's important to make that question very specific because as many religions that exist in the world, those are as many views as people have about Jesus of Nazareth. The Muslims don't believe that he's the Messiah because according to them, God would never really come in the flesh. The Jews say about Jesus, whoever he was, he couldn't be the promised Messiah of the Old Testament because they don't believe that he performed the messianic prophecies. The Baha'i faith says he's just a manifestation of God. And the secularists say he's a good moral teacher and his sermon on the Mount ought to be followed. But the supernatural claims and events and claims of deity should be left behind for more sophisticated ideas. People believe a lot of different things about Jesus. But then there's the inspired accounts of people like Peter and John and Paul. When you open up your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3, what you have in the first 13 verses is Paul describing earthly leadership and the qualifications for elders and for deacons. And then in verse 14, as Josh read just a moment ago, he pivots and he says, I hope to come to you soon. But if I'm delayed, I'm writing the things that I'm writing so that you might know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And then in verse 16, Paul gives us one of the most comprehensive statements about the person and work of Jesus and really all of the New Testament. He says, without controversy. Indeed, we confess great is the mystery of godliness. Speaking about Jesus, he was manifest in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world and then taken up in glory. In a chapter that starts by looking at earthly leaders. Paul eventually transitions in verse 16 and gets us to focus on our one and only heavenly leader, which is Jesus Christ. He says, this is who Jesus is and we must see him for all that he's worth. And as we examine this text today, verse 16 is going to be where every point of this lesson is going to be driven from. As we see Jesus for all that he's worth, as we see Jesus as he's described in Scripture, it may help us see ourselves as we should. First Timothy is a book filled with an emphasis on getting the doctrine right and avoiding false ideas. But Paul lets us know in verses like 1 Timothy 3, 16, it's not just that the church needs rules so that she might know how to behave. The church also needs to behold her God so that she'll know what she must believe. And that's exactly what he gives us in verse 16. If you have your Bible, just keep it open to First Timothy 3 and verse 16. And let us just unpack what Paul tells us about Jesus. And as we do it. May we all come to see him for all that he's worth. Here's number one. Paul says, if we're going to see Jesus for all that he's worth, we must appreciate his arrival in the flesh. That's verse 16. Now, in verse 16, he starts out by saying we confess this mystery of godliness. Mystery in the New Testament isn't like mystery novels, something nobody can figure out. When the New Testament uses the word mystery, it's often speaking about the plans of God that have been concealed from human knowledge until God feels as if it's the proper time to reveal those plans. Ephesians 3 and verse 3, you remember Paul says how by revelation was made known to me the mystery. And I wrote it down in a few words in 1 Timothy 3:16, the mystery of godliness that we confess. It's amazing. As you actually start to read what Paul says, the mystery is not really a plan. It's a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. He says that what God wants to say to everybody in the world, he says it through and only through Jesus is Hebrews one, one and two come to life. God in various times and in various ways spoke to the prophets in times past in those ways. But in these last days, he speaks to us through his son, whatever God wants to say to the world. He says it through this person in verse 16. And notice the first thing Paul says, appreciate his arrival in the flesh. He was manifest in the flesh. This tells us at least two things about Jesus. It tells us that when Jesus was born, he didn't begin to exist. He was manifest in the flesh means he previously existed. But then he shows himself in a new way in human form. John one says that he was in the beginning with God. He is God and all things were made by him. But the second thing it tells us is that he chose to become a flesh and blood human being and come to our world. Jesus was manifest in the flesh. Isaiah 714 says, behold, a virgin will conceive and bring forth the son and you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The famous text of John one and verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. John starts out by saying, listen, if you're going to see Jesus for all he's worth, you've got to appreciate his arrival in human flesh. Early on in the first century, there were people that came along and said, you know, Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. And so several times, 1 John four, two and three and 2 John seven, the apostles say, if anybody comes to you and denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, if they deny that reality, they're not only a false teacher. John says people that profess those claims are actually the antichrist. Second John nine and verse seven. If anyone doesn't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, he's a deceiver and the antichrist. Why? Because the apostles wanted their readers then and now to know that Jesus is not just a philosophy. Jesus is not just a set of abstract doctrines. Jesus literally came in a human flesh body and lived among humanity, and we beheld that glory. The first two verses of 1 John say we saw him, we handled him, we touched him, the words of this life. Seeing Jesus for all he's worth means realizing he is and was a human being. In 1961, the Soviet Union put a man in outer space for the first time. Yuri Gargan was his name. When he got there, it's reported that he said, I'm up here and I don't see any God. C.S. Lewis wrote a response. He was living 1963. He wrote an essay in response to Gargan's claims. And he says, wait a minute. If God does exist and he does, human beings would not relate to God in the same way a person on the first floor relates to a person on the second floor. That is, we wouldn't relate to God simply by going up higher to find him, whether in our atmosphere or some other, Lewis says, no. If God does exist and he does, humans would relate to God in the same way that a character in the story would relate to the author. We would relate to God in the same way that Hamlet would relate to Shakespeare or that Tom Sawyer would relate to Mark Twain. That is to say, a character in the story could only know the author if the author were to write himself in. And don't you see in the incarnation, God has written himself in. John 1 and verse 18, the unknown God, nobody can see him. This one has made him known. That's Jesus, he's written himself in. The incarnation says to you and me, we would have never made our way to him. And so he's come down and condescended to us. Romans one and verse three, he is from the seed of David and manifest in the flesh. He's the image of God in human form. Hebrews one and verse three, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him. Colossians two and verse nine. You want to see Jesus for all that he is. Appreciate his arrival in the flesh. He really did become a human flesh and blood just like us. Dorothy Sayer says, for whatever reason, God has chosen to make human beings as he has with weaknesses, sufferings, frailty and even death. But he was honest enough and courageous enough to take his own medicine. She says he came to the earth and took no shortcuts. He lived just like we did, dealt with the irritations of trivial family matters, the cramping hindrances of everyday work and life. He was born in poverty, died in disgrace and thought it all worth his while for us. He came. He was manifest in the flesh. It's the first thing John says to every one of us so that we might appreciate who Jesus really is. He is and was divine, but he also is a human being. If you have a Jesus who didn't come to earth in a human body, who didn't suffer trials and tears and temptation, you don't have the Jesus of the Bible. Paul says appreciate how he came as a human being. The Jesus of the Bible doesn't need to be edited. He simply needs to be embraced for all that the Bible says that he is. Acts 4 and verse 12, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that's found in the person of Jesus. The incarnation, that is Jesus becoming a human, it says to us some pretty heavy things. It says that you and I were so bad that God had to come down to earth to save us. But it also says that we were so adored that he didn't think twice about doing it. 1 John four and verse nine, John says, here is love that God sent his son to the world to die for our sins. Here is, is that love made manifest that God sent Jesus into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. Who is Jesus? What is he worth? First, appreciate his arrival in the flesh. But notice the second thing Paul says he was vindicated or justified in the spirit. Verse 16, he was manifest in the flesh and then he was justified or vindicated by the spirit. Normally, when this word appears in the New Testament to be justified, it's talking about you and me being justified or forgiven for our sins. But that's not what it means here about Jesus. It means that Jesus was justified or vindicated, proved right by his resurrection. And there's a lot of talk. Was Jesus vindicated in his personal spirit or in the Holy Spirit? And I believe here Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit of God who signed off on Jesus's claims when he raised him from the dead. Second Corinthians 13 and verse four says he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. Just think about the life Jesus lived throughout his life. He was laughed at. He was accused of blasphemy. He was mocked. They cried for his blood and eventually they crucified him. Isaiah told us it was going to be this way. Isaiah 53 and verse three. He was despised and rejected among men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief in the world. He never got a fair hearing. People wanted nothing to do with his claims for the most part. But appreciate what Paul's telling us in verse 16. He was vindicated by the spirit. That means when Jesus was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit of God, he was proven right. Every claim of his was fully validated and embraced. He really was telling the truth about who he was. You remember, he stood before Caiaphas and in Caiaphas frustration in Mark 14 and verse 61, he says, tell us, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus says in verse 62, I am. And you'll see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and coming in glory. And he did. And when he did that, God was signing off on Jesus and saying he's exactly who he claimed to be. He was proved right by the spirit. And that's exactly what Paul says. You just read the Gospels and see Jesus's relationship to the Holy Spirit throughout his earthly ministry. When he was baptized, you remember the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. And what does God say? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. In fact, it was the Holy Spirit that was abiding on Jesus that let John the Baptist know here's the Messiah. John says, I was looking for the one on whom the Holy Spirit would descend and remain. And I would know that that was him. And it was John 1, 31 through 34. The Holy Spirit equipped Jesus to do the miracles he did. Matthew 12 and verse 28. He says, I do these things by the spirit of God. But more than all of those things, the one thing that the Holy Spirit did to vindicate Jesus was to raise him from the dead. Turn your Bible to the book of Romans. Hold your hand in 1 Timothy 316 and go to Romans chapter one. And notice how Paul introduces Jesus and says he is the son of God. And proof of that is what the Holy Spirit does for him or did for him and with him. Romans 1 in verse 4, notice after he says in verse 3, Christ was manifest according to the flesh as the seed of David. Romans 1 in verse 4 says he is declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. The spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead and signed off. That was God's stamp of approval. This really is my son. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter eight is talking about our future resurrection as Christians. But notice what Paul says in Romans eight and verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you, God will also quicken or give life to your mortal bodies by that same spirit that dwells in you. Don't you see what Paul's saying? The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. He'll raise us. But when he raised Jesus, Jesus was vindicated of all charges. This is the Holy Spirit's way of taking everybody in the world by the hand and saying, follow the evidence where it leads. And that evidence leads to an empty tomb and to Jesus really being the son of God. But appreciate what the Holy Spirit is not doing. He's not saying, I really need you to believe to make it true. He's saying it already is whether you acknowledge it or not. John 15 and verse 26. Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll bear witness about me. And he did in the resurrection. And in the inspired accounts that bear that witness and bear that truth. If you go to a store today and shop, by the time you leave, if you get in the parking lot or if somebody comes to your house to perform a service, by the time they get out of your door, your email is going to ding. They're going to give you a customer satisfaction survey. And you know why they do that to irritate you. No, not really. They do it because they want you to tell them how they did. What do you think about their services? Would you refer us to other people? What can we do better the next time? They're so desperate to get these companies often will give incentives or discounts. If you fill this out, we'll do. They think they need these things to help them do their work better. They prize them and appreciate them. Appreciate the fact that when Jesus ascended back to heaven, heaven sent us no such email. Heaven's really not interested in how we think Jesus did or whether we'll refer him to other people or signing off on him. The Holy Spirit gave Jesus a five star rating on his finished work when he raised him from the dead. <coughs> Acts chapter 2, Peter says in verse 32, this Jesus, God raised from the dead, and of that we're all witnesses. He's exalted him to his right hand, having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit who's poured out this that you now see and hear. You see, the Holy Spirit proves that Jesus is right, wants us to believe, but God has already told us what he thinks about Jesus in and through the resurrection. And I just think this idea of being vindicated by the Spirit is instructive for those of us who want to follow in God's footsteps. It reminds us that Jesus claimed throughout his life, I'm the son of God. And people said, no, you're not. He says, these are the miracles to prove it. They said you couldn't be. He says, here are the prophecies i fulfilled. They said, we don't believe you. It's a reminder to us that what we need more than anything else is for God to approve us and not people. This is no permission from God to be obnoxious in Jesus' name. But it does mean the best vindication is divine vindication. It really doesn't matter what everybody else in the world thinks about us. Most people in the world got Jesus wrong, and sometimes they'll get us wrong. But listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 5. He says that our sufficiency does not come from ourselves, but from God. We make it our aim to be acceptable with him, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4. We need to be approved by the Spirit just like Jesus was. Now, here's number three. If you're still in 1 Timothy three sixteen. Jesus was obviously manifest in the flesh. He came. He had an arrival in the flesh. He was approved by the spirit. But the third thing Paul says is he appeared to angels. You just start reading about all the things that are connected with Jesus's life in the angels. They told Mary, you remember Gabriel comes to Mary in Luke 1, 26 through 31. You'll bear a son. He'll be the Messiah. At his birth, they said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Luke 2 and verse 14. When Jesus was tempted after he overcame, the angels came and ministered to him. Matthew four and verse 11. And when he was begging God in the garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. The angels came even then and strengthened him. He told the disciples, I can call 12 legions of angels and they'll rescue me from this. Matthew 26, 53. But Paul says here, Jesus appeared to the angels. What does that mean? Surely the angels were concerned with what Jesus did. You know, the Bible tells us that angels sinned and violated God's will. And when they did, God sent them down to hell. If I were an angel and I violated the will of God and I was cast down to hell and then humanity sins and God comes to earth in their place to die for them. I'd be greatly interested in that. And the angels were. Hebrews 2 and verse 16 says, it's not angels who he helps, but the children of Abraham. Jesus appeared to the angels. When? When? In his earthly ministry, yes, but also in his ascension, when he goes back to glory, they see him. They're glad that he's back home and they saw everything he did while he was on earth. They're the ones at the empty tomb telling the apostles he's not here. He's risen, just like he said. Come see the place where he lays. Matthew 28 and verse six. They're there on the mount with the apostles when he ascends up to heaven, Acts 1, 9 through 11. And they tell him this same Jesus whom you've seen go into heaven will come in like manner as you've seen him go. They're the ones reminding the apostles of these eternal truths. But Paul's saying something more here. Turn your Bible to first Peter, chapter three, and notice verse 22. After Peter likens our resurrection to what happens in the days of Noah. First Peter three and verse 22 says that Jesus ascended. And then it talks about what happens at the ascension. Angels, authorities and powers were made subject to Jesus. Chapman says Christ twice passed the angels first in coming down in a humiliation lower than theirs. But secondly, when he was exalted and enjoyed a place higher than they ever could, he was seen of angels. They saw him when Paul says he was seen of angels. He doesn't just mean that they glanced. He means that they gazed. All of the angels of God worshipped him, Hebrews 1 and verse 6, and they're encouraging us to do the same thing. When you read in 1 Timothy 3:16, Jesus was seen of angels. Don't think that the angels just looked one time and that was it. This is kind of like watching a football game with somebody and getting nudged in your stomach and being asked, did you see that? They don't mean when they ask you that, were you suddenly struck blind and unable to see the play that transpired. What they mean is, did you really see it? And not only did you really see it, did it cause the same amount of excitement in you as it did in them? The angels didn't just glance. They gazed and they invite us to do the same thing. The angels would say to us, did you see that? He came here for you. Look at what Jesus did in your stead. Don't just glance at him. Take a long stare and a gaze. Think at how often the Bible tells us to look to Jesus. Seek the things that are above Colossians 3one through 4. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12 and verse 2. We look for our Savior to come from heaven, Philippians 3 and verse 21. Don't just see Him, really see Him for all that He's worth. And if we do, we'll do exactly what the angels did. We'll fall down in worship, in awe, and in amazement. Here's the fourth line that Paul tells us He says, Jesus had an arrival in the flesh, He was approved by the Spirit, He appeared to angels and then he was announced to the nations. It says that he was preached among the nations. That means the gospel went into all the world. The first time the gospel was preached in Acts chapter two and verse five, it says that there were devout Jews of every nation under heaven that were present. And now Paul says he was preached among the nations by everybody, everybody heard about Jesus. You just take the book of Acts and you just read through the 28 chapters and you'll see this is exactly what happened. They start in Jerusalem, they branch out to other parts of Judea, they end up in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts 1 and verse 8. The same blueprint Jesus gave them is exactly what they followed. You read later on in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, and it says, Those that were scattered abroad, they went everywhere preaching the word. In fact, by halfway through the first century, the apostles could say, Jesus has been preached to every creature under heaven, Colossians 1 That's astonishing. You never read in the 39 books that make up the Old Testament. The Jews are never told, take the law of Moses and go into all the world and convert people. Nobody's ever told in the Old Testament, go throughout all the world and make people Yahweh worshipers and God fears. But the last thing Jesus said to the apostles was, you take this message, the reality of who I am, and you cover the world with it. And it's exactly what they did. Mark 16 and verse 15. This gospel has been preached to all nations and they received it. Paul says he was preached among the nations. You know, sometimes a person that doesn't know any better, they'll say something like this to a Christian. Well, the only reason why you're a Christian is because you've been born in America and you live where you live. And I mean, if you didn't live where you live, you wouldn't be a Christian as if Christianity is an American religion. But you know, that's not true. In every continent they've heard of him in North America in Asia in Europe and Antarctica Countries in Africa and Asia, everywhere that people live. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 7, I've been made an apostle and teacher to the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Everywhere that people live, they've heard that name. Paul says he has been preached among the nations. They've heard about Jesus. It's instructive to us when we read this passage and maybe we're not having such a good day and we might think to ourselves that somebody else is less than this passage is supposed to whisper to our hearts. He died for them, too. This passage reminds us that we live in a world where people sometimes think to themselves about Christianity. I don't know if it's for me. And when people say, I don't know if Christianity is for me, what they have in mind is that maybe Christianity is for certain kinds of people. And maybe I'm not one of those kinds of people. Maybe I'm too rich. Maybe I'm too poor. Maybe I'm not educated enough. Maybe I'm too educated. Maybe I'm too old or too young. Paul says he was preached to the nations. And that means everybody in every nation. First John four fourteen, He died for the whole world and everybody needs to receive that truth. But it also needs to change those of us who have already embraced it. It means that we need to be ready to open our hearts, the doors of our hearts, our tables and the pews in our churches to other people who may come in from different doors, from different cultures with different skin color and speak different languages and be reminded that Jesus was never meant to be the savior for one group, but instead the savior for the masses. Christianity is the most multicultural religion in the whole world. He was preached literally among every nation because that was always the design and the desire. It means that our hearts should be so enamored with who he is. We should be so smitten with the reality of Jesus that we can't help but add our voice to the chorus of voices who have proclaimed him among the nations. Second Corinthians 413, Paul says, we believe and so we speak. Beholding Jesus, seeing Jesus for all that he's worth means realizing that he's been announced to the nations. And we haven't done our duty until we add our voice to that announcement. Ronnie prayed a moment ago that God's put us here with tools for a certain time and a part of what he wants us to do is be a part of that heralding, a part of that announcing, because other people need to hear that same truth that we've heard. Now, here's number five. The fifth line in First Timothy three sixteen. Paul says that he was announced to the nations, but then he says he was accepted in the world. He was believed on in the world. That's 1 Timothy 316, the line right before the last one. You might even notice first Timothy 316 in your Bible is indented a little bit. It may be set off in a different type setting. Paul's walking through this poem and showing us exactly who Jesus is. He says he was accepted in the world. The first time the gospel was preached, 3000 people latched on for eternal life. Acts 2 and verse 41, they became Christians. Shortly after that, Acts four and verse four says there were about 5000 men and even in Gentile territory and Acts 18 and verse eight, many of the Corinthians hearing and believing were baptized. He wasn't just announced to the world. That's great news. But he was also believed on in the world. People heard the message about Jesus and they changed their entire lives. That's a great contrast to what happened when he was actually here in the flesh. When Jesus was here in the flesh, most people wanted nothing to do with His message. They rejected him, but when Jesus went back to heaven and the message started being proclaimed, people started to believe it. When Paul says "believed on him" in 1 Timothy 3:16, he doesn't just mean mental assent. Any historian can research, document and accept some truths about a man named Jesus from Nazareth. That's not what Paul means. In the New Testament, belief means I trust in Jesus based on his identity and I'm willing to do whatever he says as a result. Faith in the Bible means to trust in Jesus based on who he shows himself to be and be willing to do whatever he says as a result. That's why many times in the Bible, when somebody becomes a Christian, the Bible will just say he believed. It doesn't mean that's all that he did. It means that's the first domino that has to fall and all the others will follow suit. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Those who come to him must believe that he exists And he rewards those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11 and verse six. He was believed on in the world. This story started going throughout the world and people latched on to it. They accepted it. They believed. And everybody that really believes does everything else that he says. Christianity has been believed on in the world. That means Christianity has won converts from every major world religion. People that previously believed something else, they hear this story and they say, you know what? That story's better than the one I've heard. Not only is it a better story, it's a true story. We've been redeemed not with the corruptible things like silver and gold from the vain traditions of our fathers, but as a lamb without spot or blemish who was foreordained before the foundation of the world, made manifest in these last times for us. First 1 Peter 1:18 1, through 20. That message has been believed on in the world and it's changed people. Christianity is saying to the world, listen, you don't have to be smart to become a Christian. You don't have to be skilled or even studious, just a sinner. That's all you have to be. First Timothy 1:15, Paul says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If that's you, he came for you. But this passage believed on in the world means nothing unless he's believed on in your world and in my world. That's what Paul's saying. That's what this really drives at. It's not good enough that Jesus has been believed on by all the people out there. He wants to be believed on by the person in here and in your heart. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul's saying Christianity has covered the world and people have believed on him. They've taken this message and it's transformed the way that they live. Listen, Christianity doesn't stand or fall based on the way that people respond to it. Christianity is true, whether anybody believes it or not. But we can't ignore how people have responded to the message. Everywhere Christianity has gone and been embraced and practiced everywhere it's changed the world. It's Christianity that has led in most of the Western world to the respect and exaltation of women. You can thank Christianity for that. Christianity and its principles have led to the liberation and freedom of slaves. Everywhere it has been upended. It's been because people have hearkened and held on to Christian principles. It's Christianity that has come along and said, you know what? We can free people from doom and from damnation and to liberate them to eternal life. Everywhere Christianity has gone, it's made things better. It's been believed on in the world. And that track record is worthy of note. And Paul says, It'll change your world if you accept it and believe it, too. He's writing to people in Ephesus who are on the verge of hearing false doctrine. He says, don't go backwards. Go forward with the gospel and let it change your life, because it's already changed the lives of countless others who believed on him. Here's the sixth and final thing that Paul says in 1 Timothy 316. Jesus ascended up into glory. Jesus ascended up into glory. That's how Paul ends this. He says Jesus was taken back up into heaven. This is not just the footnote on the gospel. And I know sometimes we talk about the death, the burial. And what's the last part? The resurrection. And that's important. But Paul adds on a fourth one that we sometimes leave off. And that's the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension is important. It's a focal point of the gospel that Jesus went back to where he came from. It's at the ascension that Jesus sits at the right hand of God and rules on David's throne. Acts 2 and verse 33. It's not until Jesus ascends that he's exalted above all heavenly beings, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. It's the ascension that allows Jesus to take up his inaugural role that he continues right now as our heavenly high priest, Hebrews 8 and verse 1. All of those things happen in the ascension. The resurrection says Jesus lives. The ascension says Jesus reigns. And his dominion is forever and ever. First Peter 5, 11, 1 Peter 5:11. Revelation 1:6. Daniel would say to us if he was up here preaching this lesson based on Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Christians, when you read about the ascension of Jesus, don't just view it as a departure. You have to also view it as an arrival. Yes, Jesus was leaving earth and going to heaven, but he was also coming home. I believe when Jesus was on earth, he had authority. There's no doubt about that. He walked on water. He hushed the seas. He called out demons. But according to Daniel, it's not until Jesus ascended back to the father that he received kingdoms, and glories that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It's the ascension that makes that difference. Paul ends this poem by saying he was taken up into glory. And that's great news for you and me. Do you know what this means? It means what happened to the head will also happen to the body. It means that you and I will one day ascend just like Jesus did. If the angels rejoice over one sinner that repents, what must the rejoicing be like when the Son of God comes home and sits on the right hand of God? But appreciate that same celebration. That same joy is going to be true of you and me when we go to heaven. When we ascend with him, Paul says that there will be a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. That's going to be our reality, just like it was his. Yes, we have to identify with Jesus in suffering and in the cross and in death. But we'll also identify with him in the ascension. When we go home, just like he did. This means this world was not Jesus's home. And it also means it's not our home. He came and lived in the flesh. Yes, he was justified by the spirit and proved right. He was seen by the angels and they encourage us to take a look as well. Preached among the nations, believed on by people and had their lives changed. And then he was ultimately taken up to glory. And that's where every one of us hopes to go as well. I'm not a soccer fan, but. Andreas Enestas is a man that has caught my attention. He's been called the greatest soccer player in the history of the game. And you would think for all of his accolades and as successful as he's been, that maybe it would go to his head. But everything you read about him actually says the opposite. One time he was in Barcelona and he was in a restaurant and the waitress there confused him with one of the busboys. And she just shouted at him, clear that table. And he obeyed immediately and just started cleaning up a table in a restaurant he didn't work at. He's known as a remarkable man. In 2010, in the World Cup, in the 116th minute of extra time in the game, Anestas made the goal, that the winning goal that gave Spain their first World Cup. The whole country erupted in ecstasy. He was known as a hero, as a titan. And it's there that you learn about the greatness of who he is. Because just as the celebration's taken place, he's won many accolades and been pretty successful thus far. He rips open his jersey and you read the words on his shirt which are about his friend, Danny Harkey, a former teammate of his who had died the year before in a heart with a heart attack. And that shirt says in Spanish and English, it just says Danny Harkey, always with us. He had the attention of all the world. Fifteen percent of the world's population had their eyes on him. It's the moment he's lived his entire life for. And it's in that moment that he performs the ultimate magic trick. He takes the attention off himself and directs it to somebody else and says, I want you to see him and not me. And don't you know Paul's asking us to do the same thing? In 1 Timothy 3:15, he says, I want you to know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And just about the time the world starts looking at you, just about the time you garner their attention through godliness, I want you to perform the ultimate magic trick and point them to the one in verse 16. The one who was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached on in the world believed by the nations and received up into glory. And while you can't make them believe it, they just might. And if they do, they'll end up in glory with him as well. Paul says you've got to see Jesus for all that he's worth. He's not just a prophet. He's not just an earthly messenger. He's God come in the flesh, come to earth so that he might take us from the earth to ultimately live with him in heaven. Jeremy selected a song to encourage us this morning. If you believed on Christ and you want to make that known, he's been preached among the nations, but he's been preached in our world and he wants to be believed on so that we might go to glory with him. If you do that, you'll be saved from your sins. You'll enjoy everlasting life. We'd love to be witnesses to your obedience to the gospel based on your faith in him, turning from sin and being immersed in water. And once you do that, you're a Christian and you add your voice to the chorus of voices that proclaims his name in the world and that awaits our ascension to go to glory with him. If we can pray with you or pray for you in any way, if we can be of service to you, this is your invitation. Come now as together we stand and as we sing.